the Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, full of stories and love for all. It's all about uh-huh. Pride. Virgin Radio Pride. I'd never been to a sexual health clinic before, so I walked in straight up to the desk, not really knowing what to expect. Into the testing room with the health advisor, sitting down, he opened the test packet, you see the liquid go up and you see one line appear and that's the negative. And what you desperately don't want to see is that second one. And I blinked two or three times just in case my eyes had got it wrong. The doctor basically, his words were, um, one of the tests, the HIV one, it's come back positive. And that was just... I don't really recall a lot of what else was said at that point. That was just me and staring down at the floor, and that's about it. I did ask the nurse who confirmed that the test had come back as reactive. That felt for me at the time like the beginning of the end. It was scary. Everything just goes dark. All you hear is that kind of high-pitched noise in, in your mind. Um, and I just sat there in complete, you know, disbelief for 15 minutes, thinking today is going to be the day that I have completely ruined my life. On the 4th of July 1982, a man called Terry Higgins died, and his death, an inexplicable, terrifying death, led to something extraordinary. His friends and loved ones created a charity that would care for the sick, counsel them, fundraise and relentlessly lobby a government who hated them. My name's Nathaniel J. Hall. I'm an actor, writer and HIV activist. And in 2003, a nurse sat me down and told me I was HIV positive. I was just 16. My world crumbled. It felt like being hit by a truck. I thought I'd never be able to find love. I thought I'd never have sex again. I was terrified. People would find out. So, like many people living with HIV... I kept my diagnosis a secret. Not even my family knew. The stigma and shame of HIV nearly led me to breaking point, but in 2018, I began telling my story publicly and living proudly with the virus. But despite the pain and trauma of my diagnosis, there have always been people who could help me. Charities, sexual health services, doctors who understood the disease, articles support. And all of that started with the death of one man. So who was he? 
Well, Terry was uh, born in, I think, 1945 in Haverford West in Wales, and he was in the Navy um, and then managed to get himself thrown out of the Navy. He tried to get thrown out for being gay. Uh, You know, he sort of came out and said, right, I want out of the Navy. And they said, (laughs) apparently, (laughs) they said, if we got rid of all the gays, we wouldn't have a Navy. So... um, So he went over the side of the ship with a friend and painted uh, hams and sickles in red paint and they threw him out. So <laughs> That's Rupert Whittaker, Terry's partner. Uh, we met in a, a club on Tottencourt Road and I was uh, entranced by his dancing. Uh, I'm chuckling already because I can see it in my mind's eye. Well, I'm not quite sure how the human body can do it, but he was like a bit like a human slinky. And um, he, it, 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 it was, how do you make your legs kind of ripple like rubber? It was mesmerizing for all the wrong reasons. His first view of me was probably me standing there with my mouth open, just in shock. He was very kind. Uh, a person who encouraged others and protected his friends, um, and he was always there for you, um, and had a, an interesting and very um, eclectic group of friends. He loved the club scene. Um, the interesting thing that everybody says is that he was generous and kind, and uh, almost to a fault, he would give you the shirt off his own back. And that was exactly my experience of him. He was very, uh, very, just a lovely guy. Um, I also thought he was um, very attractive. Originally from Wales, Terry worked in Parliament as a stenographer for Hansards and by night as a DJ in London. But in 1982, Rupert began to notice that Terry was not well. Something was going on because he was really losing weight. Um, And in fact, he had been losing weight for quite a while. Before I knew him, apparently he had been known as Fat Terry. Um, And uh, I've got some photos of him from before... Uh, when I knew him, and he um, he was a hefty guy, um, uh, but it, it looked great on him. Um, when I knew him, he was sort of average weight, and then he really did start to lose um, weight fast after he'd been into hospital for the first time. He, um, I was abroad doing um, some music concerts, and um, so when I came back, I found that he'd been taken to hospital. He'd collapsed in um, heaven, uh, which is a nightclub, and been taken to hospital, and nobody knew what the hell was going on. Uh, And he was in isolation at the time. We weren't allowed to actually go in and visit him. Only looked through a kind of a porthole in the door, and he was, um, yeah, he was just unconscious in in bed and uh, looking like hell. In 1982, the UK's medical establishment had little to no understanding of HIV. In fact, it wasn't even called AIDS or HIV. 
It was GRID, G-R-I-D, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. Reports of it were starting to come back from America. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. A mystery disease known as the gay plague has become an epidemic unprecedented in the history of American medicine. Doctors have even coined a new word for these conditions, GRIDS, gay-related infectious diseases. It's mysterious, it's deadly, and it's baffling medical science. Acquired immune deficiency syndrome, AIDS. Some doctors believe that 50% of the gay population is walking around with the AIDS virus. Virtually all of the victims were homosexual, particularly those with many sexual partners. And many of them wound up with a rare and often deadly form of cancer. Gays are being called a dangerous and violent group that corrupts children and infects the community with AIDS. I tried to get information from the consultant, but the consultant was, as was par for the course, then really snooty. Um, this sort of uh, god complex um, that consultant physicians had then, and um, often still do. Uh, and it, I wasn't getting any information, and it was clear that he also didn't know what what was going on. And I said, "Do you think it might be this American disease um, that's affecting gay men?" And um, he kind of obviously brushed that off. And also because I was just this sort of silly, silly little twink probably in his eyes and also um, a homosexual, um, I was obviously not some, someone to take seriously. And after um, Terry died, they still wouldn't tell me what he had had. But um, it later became obvious that it was in fact uh, what came to be known as AIDS. Terry was one of the first to die here in the UK, and Rupert was left watching the disease make its way remorselessly through the gay community. Guys would be dropping like flies. Uh, you would meet somebody or get to know somebody um, in a social setting, and next time you're out and you see the same people, you say, oh, so where's that guy? Oh, he's dead. And it was only you know a month before or a few weeks before that continued all the way through um, the to the mid nineties uh, until treatment really started to to kick in and well had been discovered and um, then started to be used. Uh, it was like a war, uh, an undeclared war, where somebody was taking us out and we didn't know what the hell was happening. And while the young gay men of Britain were dying, the establishment turned against them. People in statutory services were spouting what's now called hate speech. It was fierce. Um, from about 83, 
four, I would say, um, it really kicked into gear. And that's when the, the talk of tattooing us and quarantining us and putting us in effectively concentration camps was uh, being, uh, you know, m- mooted um, or touted. And it was h- horrific to go through. Um, well, I, I remember personally uh, struggling with the idea that I would be tattooed and quarantined on an island or killed. Um, this was the, the level of the hate speech that was going on at the time. And it was from, uh, well, the one was a chief of police in Manchester. And, uh, but all the red tops, uh, new, um, the gutter press, uh, they, they felt completely entitled to pile on and make things so much harder for us when we were literally just trying to survive. And it was solely because we were gay. The Manchester Chief of Police Rupert is talking about was James Anderton. And in 1986, the year I was born, he said in an interview that gay men were swirling around in a human cesspit of their own making. Rupert was an adult then and had been out as a gay man for a long time and it was still inconceivably frightening. But for gay teens, it was paralysing. For me, growing up gay in the 1980s and the early 90s, um, it was a community that was experiencing loss and grief and going through mourning on a very regular basis. I went to more funerals in my 20s than I ever did in my 30s or my 40s or so far in my 50s. But it didn't feel unusual because I didn't know anything else that was the gay community that I grew up into, a community that was dealing with grief. Matthew Hodson is now the head of AIDS Map, an online education service. Well, I went to university in 1986 um, and like many people, I went to university and although I'd been kind of gaying it around London before I went to university, by the time I got to university, I was ready to fully embrace my identity as a proud homosexual man. Um, Of course, that was the same time as AIDS really started to hit our community here in the UK. Um, and in 1987, the Iceberg and Tombstone adverts came out, which were, of course, instilled fear and dread, not only into the hearts of homosexuals, but also into the hearts of everybody, pretty much. There is now a danger that has become a threat to us all. It is a deadly disease and there is no known cure. The virus can be passed during sexual intercourse with an infected person. Anyone can get it, man or woman. So far, it's been confined to small groups, but it's spreading. So protect yourself and read this leaflet when it arrives. 
If you ignore AIDS, it could be the death of you. So don't die of ignorance. It was against this background that Rupert and Terry's friend Martin Butler founded the Terence Higgins Trust. We wanted to do something about this because we realised that it was this uh, so-called American disease. And um, I, I think the, the shock uh, and the grief um, galvanised me, but also Martin Butler, whose idea the um, trust was, uh, galvanised us into trying to do some stuff. And a, a bunch of Terry's friends met at Martin's flat in, the, in East London. And we, uh, and it's strange, I can have some, I have some very clear images of that meeting. We started it off originally as the Terry Higgins Trust, and eventually uh, that was changed, and partly because uh, at that time it was still very much a, a challenge to be taken seriously and to be um, looked at as a, an effective and, and actually powerful organisation. My guess that underneath it, it was like, well, we need to look serious in order to be taken seriously. And uh, that was, uh, you know, it's a, a product of um, British classism. Uh, and uh, we don't have that problem so much today, thankfully. But um, yeah, it was to me, he was always Terry, it was originally Terry. And then in order to sort of step up and go toe to toe with uh, the uh, powers that be and be taken seriously. Ian Green is the chief executive of the Terence Higgins Trust today. We do a range of charitable activity really focused around HIV prevention. So um, supporting people to not get infected with HIV and uh, a wide variety of different things we do. So we run HIV testing week. We encourage people to think about strategies that need to be in place around HIV prevention. Today, it's a huge support network that reaches every part of HIV prevention, treatment and help. In 1982, it was Rupert and Martin desperately trying to work out how they could make a difference as the epidemic raged around them. The idea for the trust was to, first of all, uh, we were going to raise funds for research and then we realised that's actually not practical. We needed to do education and then we realised we needed to organise services. Uh, first the counselling services and then uh, later on the buddying and uh, basically home nursing services um, for people as they were dying. Soon they had a network of awe-inspiring volunteers. I haven't seen or witnessed anything like that um, since in any um, community that I've seen. It really did happen. We pulled together and there, there were and continue to be um, many s stupid, mindless catfights. 
But um, what we did was we pulled together and we made a difference. And that was the work of thousands of people. Well, they were doing everything from um, handing out literature on how to have so-called safe sex or safer sex, um, going into the clubs, doing what's now called community outreach, um, and raising funds, trying to um, get the word out in other ways, um, uh, all the way down to, um, you know, if people are sick at home, they don't have any food, uh, you go and buy them food with, with money that has been donated or with their own money if they, if they have access to that. Uh, people were trying to organize their and integrate their uh, social services with their physical health services and the mental health services. And that is one of the real achievements is that we learned how to do that. And we showed how effective it can be and how streamlined it can get. And um, it was not only a good idea, it was essential for people with um, what were then terminal conditions and now chronic conditions. As research into the disease continued, understanding of it began to change. At the same time, research reports will highlight many successes, especially in the area of the search for possible vaccines. This contrast of awful news with some hope will be a major theme of the conference. Well, I think you have to divide it into two components. One is the scientific approach and one is the public health approach. What's happened scientifically has been most extraordinary. Now, it's difficult to call that a triumph, even though in some respects it is, because it's done in the background of an epidemic that is still raging out of control. There will be some reports on improved treatments, but no major developments. The thing is that HIV didn't affect just gay men. We're coming to see now the um, decades-long fight for justice for those uh, hemophiliacs who were infected um, through uh, contaminated blood products. But also we knew from fairly early on that it also affected um, the Caribbean and um, African um, uh, people. This is something that affects all of us and we, all of us, need to be the solution to it. Hello, my name's Susan Cole. Um, I work for the HIV information charity NAM AIDSMAP and I lead their community engagement and broadcasting activities. But I've been working in HIV for almost 20 years. I was diagnosed through a routine immigration test in America and um, so it just did not cross my mind for a moment that it would come back as positive because it was just one of many tests that I was having and the doctor who diagnosed me, um, he was just an immigration doctor and he said to me, well the good news is you don't have syphilis but the bad news is you're HIV positive and oh, you have about seven years to live. This was like 23, 24 years ago. So luckily he got it very wrong, but my children were just five and seven at the time. So hearing something like that for me was absolutely devastating and, and just really terrifying. In the eighties and nineties, HIV was often seen as a gay man's disease. And although it does disproportionately affect gay and bisexual men here in the UK, it also disproportionately affects other communities. Women 
make up about a third of people living with HIV in the UK. And it also disproportionately affects black British and black African communities. I would say that people from black communities in the UK are disproportionately affected by HIV. However, there's still a a significant amount of stigma around HIV in people in black communities. And also, I think that people from black communities face intersecting forms of stigma and discrimination. So for instance, um, people may have experienced systemic racism in healthcare settings in the past, so may be reluctant to test. And so that can impact on people in terms of how they engage with care. I mean, people from black communities, despite being disproportionately affected, are more likely to be diagnosed late when, for instance, HIV may have had a more negative impact on their health. So they're more likely to become uh, really unwell. And um, so I think things like stigma and discrimination can really impact on that. So I think there's a real need for more awareness uh, of HIV in people um, in black communities in Britain. I was in my 20s, in the 80s, and, and having a whale of a time. And I shared a a flat with a a gay guy. And so he showed us down Oxford Street and all the gay bars. And there was that undercurrent then of HIV and AIDS. But I just felt that it didn't impact on me personally. Um, hi, I'm Vicky. I'm uh, I'm HIV positive. Um, I was diagnosed uh, five years ago, and this was when I was follow. It was following a, a the end of a relationship, the end of my marriage, which was really long, um, with largely no sex whatsoever. So I was really looking forward to any new relationships and having lots of sex. When I had the opportunity to to date somebody, uh, it was fantastic at the time. It lasted about three months. But during this time, I became poorly. Um, I now know it was seroconversion, uh, but it didn't have the usual flu-like symptoms that some people can get. I just simply couldn't eat or drink for 10 days. The relationship finished uh, a few months later and I thought I'd set my two daughters a good example and go and get tested at my sexual health clinic. It's not somewhere I would have expected an older woman to be going to, but of course sexual health clinics are for everyone. They asked me a lot of questions. They made me feel totally at home. Um, the I was examined and being menopausal, although I didn't really realise it at the time, I was diagnosed with vaginal atrophy. This is caused by low estrogen and it can cause microcuts, which in turn can allow viruses and infections to enter. This is what I know now. And as my partner was unknowingly at the time living with HIV, um, I contracted it from him. It was 
pretty sure that that test was actually positive. So when I went back for the retest, I asked and they said, yes, it was a reactive test. So you could say I was led into it quite gently instead of you have HIV, you know, which some people just get told. But then I had to wait another five weeks because it was Easter time and things are a lot improved now, but I hated that. And I can get upset over it as well still. So I remember I go, I, I remember I went into one of the rooms downstairs and just shouted, my kids weren't at home. I hope the neighbours wouldn't be able to hear me. And I think some people likening it to howling at the moon sort of thing, not like a werewolf, but just that, I don't know, that just deep sense of something. It can be likened to a grieving process. This is Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Nathaniel J. Hall, and this is the legacy of Terry Higgins on Virgin Radio Pride. My diagnosis was in 2003, and although effective medication existed, the range of options available today were not on the table. I had to wait five years before going on meds. Today, people are put straight on them. Side effects of some earlier medications could be hard to stomach. Mine affected me psychologically. I'd sweat and hallucinate at night and the exacerbated symptoms of PTSD and anxiety. Thankfully, meds today are much more palatable and most people find a combination that works well for them with few or no side effects at all. The care people receive now exists because the Terence Higgins Trust has worked with the NHS since the 1980s. Rupert Whittaker knows better than most how that system should work. If you are at risk from having HIV, which mostly these days is due to unprotected sexual activity, um, and when I say unprotected, that means sexual activity that doesn't involve a condom or, more usefully, um, doesn't involve uh, PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is HIV medications that you take that um, prevent you um, from being infected and which are extremely um, effective. If you are at risk, as in an, a risk group, like a young gay man, or a, a gay man of any age actually, um, then you will hopefully be linked in with your sexual health services. You will you know, get the opportunity for regular HIV um, uh, tests, and if for some unfortunate reason you do turn out to be positive, then the effects on your immune system and the amount of virus you have in your blood are assessed and then the uh, decisions are made as to whether it would be appropriate to wait um, uh, in terms of going on treatment or to start treatment um, more immediately 
And also, then you get a, a, an opportunity to make informed decisions around how to continue to have um, a very good sex life, but one that is not a risk to you or to anybody else. And so it looks a very straightforward pathway, but all aspects of this have been built up over decades. That pathway was how it was when I was diagnosed back in 2003. Today, people who receive a positive diagnosis are offered medication straight away because the science says this is better for the patient and their partners. Sadly, neither of these diagnosis journeys, carved out so painstakingly, were available to Rupert himself. Because after Terry died, Rupert became ill. A year after Terry died, one of the first community-based meetings, I I ran into some of the junior uh, physicians who had been involved in Terry's care. They were shocked to see that I was still alive. And they said so. Um, and it was really that blunt when we expected you to be dead by now. At this point, Rupert was working as a scientist in HIV research in the US, and he was forced to test himself. I actually found out that I had HIV by testing my own blood in the lab in uh, Boston, where I was doing um, a PhD. And um, then when I came back to Britain on my yearly visits, uh, I went back to see the physician who, uh, under whose um, care I was. He said, yes, we tested your blood uh, from 82, and uh, yes, it was positive. Rupert is now one of the longest surviving HIV patients in Europe. For many, many years, I lived under the assumption that I was going to die within a year or two. Um, and I didn't understand why I hadn't. Um, I did do my, my very best to try and influence my health. It wasn't, um, I wasn't under the impression that I could eradicate this, um, this infection, but I was going to do the very best I could to support my own body until I could get something that was directly antiviral.
HIV and AIDS in the 80s and 90s was a doubly cruel disease because a patient fights a war on two fronts, against the illness and against stigma. People get chucked out of their jobs, um, out of their homes, out of their families, onto the street, and they were sick. In 93, I was still having to deal with this. I, I was due to be deported for having HIV, um, despite having been in America for almost 10 years as a, a scientist and clinician working in HIV. But because I had HIV, therefore I was going to be a parasite on America and they needed to get rid of me. Whereas, in fact, the, the, there was no public health rationale for this at all. And it was pure um, bigotry and hatred. And it was just homophobia. And it was a, a great way that some southern senator could grandstand and, and sort of get votes. That stigma has lessened now but its shadow remains in many areas of life and the establishment. In 1980, all gay and bisexual men were banned from giving blood. In 2011, the rule was changed, but men who had sex with men had to abstain from all sexual activity for a year to give blood. And this was only scrapped in 2021. And that wasn't the only discriminatory practice that continued into this decade. So I've wanted to fly for as long as I can remember since I was a little kid. James Bush is a pilot from Stoke-on-Trent. I was on a flight back from Tenerife when I was eight years old and I was doing my usual routine, which would be go in, fight my parents for the window seat, midway through the flight, ding the cabin crew to um, get into the flight deck, go up to the flight deck because you still could back in those days and um, go and talk to the, to the, to the pilots. Um, and on this particular flight, I'd seen on my way out that there was there was a kid that had come out of the flight deck. And I thought, wait a minute, he must have been in there for the landing. I wonder if I could do this too. So on the way home, was in the flight deck, was just about to get taken back to my seat. And I plucked up the courage to ask if I could stay. And the captain, and I still remember his name, Captain Robert Chandler. Uh, he said, yeah, you, you know, you can um, get a headset on, get yourself strapped in. Here we go. And I just remember being totally mesmerized by everything that I saw, everything that I heard, everything that those guys were doing. Um, we were coming back into Manchester, the bright lights of the city, hearing all um, the air traffic control going on uh, and just seeing these guys fly this airplane and sat there thinking, OK, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up. And as soon as I was old enough to reach the, the, the rudder pedals at your feet in an aeroplane, I had a flying lesson and that was me hooked. And at 15, I started to fly, got my private pilot's license when I was 17. And yeah, was, was flying around the skies before I'd even learned to drive a car. In 2017, James began to train to make that childhood dream a reality. On the day that I was diagnosed with HIV, I walked out of the, the doctor's surgery and as I was walking back home, I got a phone call um, from British Airways to say, congratulations, you're through to the final stage of our um, future pilot programme uh, selection. 
Um, we'll see you for the final assessment in two weeks' time. And you've got a great chance. So baby, tell me yes, and I will give you there was 16 of us um, for eight places um, yeah so, so that was so stark and it, it, it just kind of I felt like I'd been completely bulldozed by that point to be honest thinking oh my god this uh, what will this mean for my career um, I ended up not getting that place and in the in the years that followed in the two or three years that followed I, I reapplied to different schemes and then in 2017, I was offered a place with EasyJets on their um, pilot training program. At that point, once I got that place, I went for a medical. Every commercial pilot needs to have um, a, a medical certificate, essentially, that allows us to fly. And that is a little bit more... Um, difficult to obtain than, than the one that I'd already got for my private pilot's license. So I went for the medical, went through all the tests, passed with flying colors, and um, yeah, got to the end of the day and the doctor said to me, yeah, brilliant, everything's fine, everything's great, um, but unfortunately I can't give you a medical um, because you hate to be positive. Right, okay, um, but but why? He said, well, the, the rules state that if you were already a pilot that already held a commercial license who became HIV positive, you could continue to fly. But in your situation, in my situation, if you're a person living with HIV who wants to become a pilot, you can't. Um, and that was it. I was sent on my merry way and, you know, advice in hand being essentially go and find another career. But James decided to fight against the rules. I was feeling completely well. I'd been on successful treatment for two years. And I thought, you know, why, why are we still using this outdated evidence? So I appealed to the, um, to the authorities here in the UK, went through that entire process, and at each stage was just told, no, you know, we don't... Uh, it's not within our gift to, to change this. And... I asked the same question of a number of other authorities across Europe. Each and every time, the answer was no. The rules are clear. If you're living with HIV, you cannot become a pilot. And eventually, in October of 2017, I thought, like, I can't do this on my own. I need some help. And that's when I approached uh, a number of charities in, in the UK. HIV Scotland, at that point in time, were, were inc incredibly helpful and influential. Um, but combined with HAE Scotland uh, was the National AIDS Trust and the Terence Higgins Trust who had written to the CAA um, to express their concerns about the situation and to say that actually this, this is wrong. You know, times have changed and there's no reason why a person living with HIV shouldn't, shouldn't be able to train as a pilot. James had kept his diagnosis a secret from many of his friends and family, so he gave anonymous interviews and the campaign began to gather momentum. After about four months of this sort of combined medical, political and media campaign, there was enough pressure, I guess, on the CAA to, uh, to make a U-turn. And then in January 2018, I got a phone call um, from the CAO of, of the charity to say, the rules have changed and you've won and you can train. 
then you can become a pilot. And, and that was that. For the first time on that day since I was diagnosed, I was able to think HIV hasn't beaten me and that I'd won and that HIV won't stop me doing anything that I want to do. And it was the first day that I truly believed it, I think. James is now a pilot. He featured in the campaign, Terence Higgins Changed My Life. It's not just attitudes to HIV that are changing. The treatments available mean it's now a manageable condition. My name's Laura Waters. I'm a doctor in sexual health and HIV based in central London. I'm a trustee of the Terence Higgins Trust and I'm also chair of the British HIV Association. When I first heard of HIV in 87, that's when the very first HIV drug became available. And it was just one drug, and then over the next several years, there were a couple more drugs. But none of them were very effective, or if they were, it was for a very short time. So it was the mid-90s that the concept of combination therapy became um, apparent. So as new drugs got developed, combining those drugs meant for the first time you could get people's viral loads undetectable, the goal of treatment, and keep them down. But the problem was those drugs had loads of side effects. People were taking several pills several times a day, some on an empty stomach, some with food, really debilitating side effects, severe diarrhea, skin changes, fat loss. So people didn't just feel terrible, they had visible side effects that could be really stigmatizing. And if you didn't take the treatment exactly as you were advised to, there was a high chance of the viral load coming back up and you developing drug resistance, which made the HIV very hard to treat. So from like the mid nineties onwards, new drugs became available, new families of drugs, improvements in the drugs we had already, collaborations between drug companies, studies to really understand the barriers to taking treatment and the understanding that the fewer people, fewer pills people take and less times a day, the more likely they are to take them. And all of that development, all of that research, all of the people with HIV who participated in that research eventually we reached a stage where you could take just one pill once a day. And we're now in the era of long-acting treatment. So whilst now most people still start tablets, this year in England, for the first time, we've had injectable HIV treatment available. Now, it's not suitable for everybody, and you have to already be on effective treatment. It's not something we start straight away, but it's going to be a really important option for people who struggle to take their pills. And I always describe it as the sort of first stone in the stepping stone of long-acting treatments across the river of HIV, and eventually, at some point in the future, we'll have implants that, that get changed once every one to two years, and really mean that people living with HIV don't need to think about taking pills every day. And there are also preventative treatments that everyone should be aware of. So PrEP is short for pre-exposure prophylaxis and what it means in the context of HIV is taking HIV medication when you're HIV negative to reduce the risk of getting HIV. So it's using HIV drugs in HIV negative people. It's highly effective. At the moment, it's tablets taken either every day or around an event, so i.e. before and after sex. There's also injectable PrEP on the horizon. 
and there's other options like vaginal rings in the future there'll be implants maybe patches there's all ways of using hiv drugs to stop people getting hiv hiv medication is so good today that a person living with hiv who is on effective medication cannot pass it on known as undetectable equals untransmittable or u equals u for short it has revolutionized the sex lives and confidence of people like me undetectable that refers to the amount of virus in the bloodstream so if someone's got hiv we can measure the amount of virus in the blood and the way that we tell if the treatment's working is when that virus is so low we can't find it with our tests so that's what undetectable means that the treatment's highly effective and what that means for people with hiv and their hiv negative partners if the viral load's undetectable in the blood there is zero risk of sexual transmission. So you can't pass the virus on to your sexual partners if you have an undetectable viral load on HIV treatment. And at the Terence Higgins Trust, they're working towards an incredible goal. No new HIV transmissions by 2030. The Trust's Chief Executive, Ian Green, explains how their support network has grown too to encompass an online community. I think that the, the importance of having opportunities for people to talk about their fears and uncertainties about HIV, and whether they feel they've been um, exposed to HIV or not, is really, really important. So THT Direct is the National HIV Helpline, um, which is uh, available every day of the week. Uh, it's just a safe space where people can pick up the phone or send an email or go into chat uh, and somebody will be there to answer people's concerns and hopefully put people's minds at rest. That is really important. But also to make sure that you know, we've got opportunities for people, if they are diagnosed with HIV, to get the support they need. Often that's through peer support. So one of the really powerful things that certainly really benefited me was to talking to other people who are living with HIV because it, you have a shared journey and a shared story. Um, and peer support is absolutely important. So we have peer support groups for people who were diagnosed before 1996, uh, so the long-term diagnosed group, and there's often more challenges for those people because of you know, the, the, the fact there was not good medication then, um, and yes, their, their health is often uh, more, more challenging, uh, but also uh, for people who are newly diagnosed. So that peer support is really important. But then there's also the, the formal psychological support through a whole range of different counselling programmes that we offer and that we, we run. And so I think it's about making sure that we have a range of different opportunities for people to engage with the charity, and it's not just us, other charities do the same, um, to support people as they journey with HIV. At the Trust, Stuart Mullen now runs one of those online spaces after it became a lifeline to him after his own diagnosis. The members and the community that we are encouraged me to take control of my appointments. So rather than going to an appointment and being spoken to and told, you need to start this medication or you need to do this or you need to do that, I, I felt empowered to go in and be able to ask questions and make decisions about my treatment. And, it, and it, it's very much about, the, the forum is about very much about those conversations. You should be in control. It is your treatment. And even now, if something comes up in my, in, in, in an appointment um, that doesn't quite make sense, that forum 
of being able to ask those questions and to get other experiences from people who've been through the same or who understand the science a little bit more than perhaps I do. Um, and they can provide me with answers and, and signposting to the right things on the internet. As you know yourself, there's a lot of wrong information on the internet that we need to, we, you need to avoid. But there is also um, a lot of information out there that is really, really useful. Looking from a window above, it's like a story of love. Can you hear me? Came back only yesterday, I'm moving farther away. Won't you near me? So, that's 40 years of HIV. 40 years since the most beautiful people began to die without warning and the establishment told them it was their own fault. 40 years since an unstoppable volunteer army banded together and cared and marched and fought and fought and fought until we secured change. What would Terry think of the trust set up in his name and the work that they have achieved? Rupert Whittaker. One thing I'm sure about, Terry would have been totally behind it. He was certainly a politically active person. Um, I think he spearheaded the introduction of unions into Hansard in Parliament. He was very um, politically aware, partly from his background in Wales. He was always a kind of person who wanted good to come out of things, but also have a really good time in life. And so he would recognize it and he would be completely behind it. But he also, he would be quite, first of all, bemused that it's named after him. I think he would be amazed as well. For me, it's been 19 years of living with HIV, longer than I've not lived with it. And even in my time, I've seen change that once felt unimaginable. After 15 years of living in secrecy and shame, I smashed through the stigma of HIV with my solo show first time. It toured the UK and I met so many other amazing people who were also ready to throw off the shackles of self-stigma and begin to live loud and proud with HIV. So much of that change is because of Terry Higgins and the people around him who loved him. So, I'll let Rupert have the last word. Throughout my life, I, I have Terry kind of created a, a blueprint um, for me in terms of uh, partners because I liked, I've always liked intelligent, cheeky chappies um, with a heart of gold who were, you know, really generous and kind, and that. That is exactly what Terry was, and um, it's it, yeah, it's difficult to sort of put somebody in a nutshell. But he was a lovely, lovely bloke.
This has been The Legacy of Terry Higgins with me, Nathaniel J. Hall. If you'd like more advice about HIV or something you've heard in this documentary, you'll find lots of information at tht.org.uk or speak to your local sexual health service. The Legacy of Terry Higgins was produced by Sean Alsop and Elsa Rochester for Audio Always on Virgin Radio Pride. Virgin Radio Pride. The Virgin Radio Pridecast. Proudly supported by Disney Plus. Celebrating every color of the rainbow.